I baptize you with water, but you, among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, when he, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So today, the title of our message is Behold the Lamb of God. Last week, um, we focused more so on the ministry of John the Baptist, and yet we really didn't focus on it because John the Baptist didn't focus on the ministry. He didn't focus on himself. He was a great deflector or a great reflector. Everything that came to him, he pointed people to Jesus. And he denied that he was the Christ because that was, you know, that was sort of the expectation. Some people kind of wanted him to be the Christ. And he said he, uh, he lowered himself and made himself nothing and said that I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandals. What he was getting to in all of this was that he was there only as a herald, only as a witness to the one who was to come into the world, to the true light that John the Apostle told us about in chapter 1, the true light that was coming into the world, the light that gives light, the light that gives light to every man. And of course that was Jesus. But now... We're going to focus specifically on the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the Lamb of God, which was why John was sent. John is a bridge. He's a parenthesis. He shows up. He burns brightly for a while in all four Gospels. And then he gets slain because of his, the stand that he takes for, for the holiness of God. And Herod the king slays him. And then we don't hear about him anymore. And yet Jesus proclaimed that he's, of those that are born of women, there is none greater than John. So Jesus regards him very highly, but he has this very small role, which is simply to reveal the Lamb of God. So we're going to look first at the Lamb's entrance in verse 29. Then we're going to look at the Lamb's pre-existence in verse 30. Pre-existence or the eternity of the Lamb is, uh, the eternity of Christ is a theme that goes all throughout the Gospel of John. And then, thirdly, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit's emblems. And there are two of them in verse 31. One is baptism, the other is the Holy Spirit. These are ways that, in which the Holy Spirit identifies with 
with Jesus. And then we're going to look at the Heavenly Father's endorsement where God the Father uh, gives his hearty approval to his own son and the work that he's going to do. And then finally we're going to look at the only son's essence. Who is Jesus really? That if you can if you can boil it down to the central characteristic that is most important about Jesus, what is that? So let's look first at the Lamb's entrance in verse 29. The next day, he, that is John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word, behold, that is something that is uh, designed to grab attention immediately. Look, the Lamb of God. Look over there. Look who's coming. And there's, there was a build-up to this. There was all of this interrogation going on. People were asking John who he was. Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Who are you? Are you a prophet? No, I'm not. But there's one coming after me that is going to blow all of your expectations away. I'm not even worthy to unleash it, un unleash, to loosen his sandal. So behold, the Lamb of God. Now what a provocative phrase that was. Everyone in Israel who was uh, literate in the, in the Old Testament knew about this Lamb of God. The Lamb was the center of their sacrificial system. The Lamb was the center of their beginning as, uh, as a nation that was led by God through the wilderness when, when they slew the, the lambs and they put the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. So this phrase, the Lamb of God, applied to a man was something very unusual indeed. There were many lambs. None of them, except in that typological case of Abraham, where the lamb was provided by God, they were all provided from the flocks of the people who had them. But here is a lamb of God, and his function is going to be to take away the sin of Israel. No, broader than Israel takes away the sin of the world. And in this context, the world means Israel and all the nations. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. This one who is coming, whom John is heralding, is going to be the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. Now in the Old Testament, there is a Passover Lamb that I mentioned. There is a Lamb it is, or there is the, the uh, sacrifice of a lamb for the daily sacrifice every morning and every evening. The, the priests were to make a sacrifice of the lamb. And then there's uh, an exposition of the lamb of God in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6, 7, and 10. Verse 6, of course, said, all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity or the sins of us all. Um, I'm just trying to find the passage here so I can read it to you. Verse 7, 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before the shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And then look down in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, and he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So here we have the slain lamb, the crushed lamb, the sin-bearing lamb, the one who, upon whom all of the sins of all Israel and really of all nations are laid upon. All of these, they're slightly different pictures of the Lamb of God. So you might ask, when John's, John the Baptist is coming, heralding the Lamb of God, which of these does he have in mind? My contention is he has all of them in mind. Because Jesus is a fulfillment of every typical Old Testament sacrifice, where a lamb that is slain, or a goat, or a, or a bull is slain. They're all pointing toward Jesus and his completing work. No, none of these other lambs, none of these other sacrifices could ever take away sin. They would cover sin. They would kind of act as a, as a marker, as a, as sort of a, a, a pointer to the ultimate sacrifice that would take away sin. If you look for a moment, let's just in our study of this lamb and who he is and why his entrance is so important. If you look for a moment to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, where it says, it is impossible for the blood, uh, let's see here, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of goats, blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And you could put in there lambs as well, just talking about the concept of sacrifice. The, uh, a little bleeding woolly lamb or a young bull or a, or a goat, that shedding of blood never took away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is Christ, the one, the word that became flesh, a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. These are not what God, what satisfied God. And I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, if you look uh, down to verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, that might have been the morning and evening sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, for since he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. Now it was significant that this is showing as Christ the high priest, but it was the blood that he brought in to make that one-time sacrifice for all the sins of the world was not the blood of a goat or a calf. It was the blood of the Lamb of God. It was his own blood that he entered in. And by that blood, he took away the sins of the world. He accomplished what none of the Old Testament sacrifices were even intended to accomplish. Behold the Lamb of God. This was a radical moment in the history of the world. How
public revelation of Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament types and shadows. Now let's look at the Lamb's pre-existence. This wasn't something that just happened willy-nilly as history went on and um, one day you know, Jesus was reading the scriptures and he kind of thought, hmm, there's going to be a Lamb of God to take away the, the sins of the world. Maybe I should you know, volunteer for that position. That's not what happened. Look at verse 30. It says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, in the passage that we're reading today, uh, this, is, uh, this is actually the second time this sentence is repeated. It's also in, in verse 15. He ranks before me because he was before me. Or he who cometh before me was before me. And we talked about last week how this, um, in, in simple human chronological terms, as far as when Jesus was born and when John was born, didn't make sense because John was born six months before Jesus. But here is John saying, he ranks before me because he was before me. And of course, that points back to John 1. 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He really does rank before John the Baptist in every way. Alright, now, so that establishes, it's, it's a very, you can miss it if you, if you read too quickly, but that is showing me eternality or the eternity of the Son. That He has always existed. And that He has always existed as a person. And that person is revealed as the Son of God. I want to give you some other scriptures that, that really establish this beyond doubt. Another one from John, from, from the high priestly prayer as it's recorded in John 17, and then one from 1 Peter. So, John 17, 24 and 25, we have uh, Jesus, before he is crucified, kind of already stepping into that role as a high priest, as one who makes intercession for the people. And listen to how he prays here in John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that's his disciples, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Because, and here it is, you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. That isn't a God looking down the corners of time into the future and seeing Jesus and loving him. That is loving him in the past, in John chapter 1, in the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word was in fellowship with God, in union, in community with God. So you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And by the way, the word know is very important. It is, um, if we were... The, the only way to express it in English is the, the physical union between man and woman. That is the depth of knowledge. It doesn't mean a physical union, but it is that depth of knowledge. 
Uh, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. So there is Christ himself in his prayer, acknowledging his eternal existence and acknowledging the eternal relationship with the Father and with the Spirit in the Godhead. All right, now let's look at 1 Peter 1, verse 18. This one is, is really exciting. Well, 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God and raised him from the dead and even glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, saying exactly the same thing. Foreknown really means foreloved. There was it, it wasn't that God um, was just looking into the future and seeing him and knowing about him, it was knowing him. He was foreknown before the foundation, but was made manifest at the last times for our sakes. Uh, in John 1 verse 18, it says, no man has seen, no person has seen God at any time. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. So, even in chapter 1, verse 18, which is really the Apostle John's commentary, it's not John the Baptist talking, but um, you see that John's emphasis there is on this intimate, eternal relationship within the Godhead. Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. The Son is in the bosom of the Father. It's, there's no, there's, it's not a literal, you know, physical connection, but it is that union. So this is how the Lamb pre-existed. In very nature, God. And in absolute community with God. Philippians 2 says, though he was in very nature with God, or as the NASB says, though he did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped. And it goes on to say how he took on flesh and became a man and became a servant and suffered and died on the death of the cross. Now, that's how he was made known to us. So this is a really important theme, the pre-existence of Christ. In this case, Peter actually, and uh, especially Peter here in verses 18 through 21 of 1 Peter 1, uh, he is he is identifying not only Jesus, you know, the, uh, the Lord who is now reigning in heaven as eternal, but he is saying this lamb is is eternal as well. The Lamb's pre-existence. Now, John goes on immediately here in verse 31. Uh, John, John the Baptist, he goes on to talk about baptism, and then there is this 
picture of the Holy Spirit coming in the form of a dove and remaining on Jesus. So in, in the meantime, Jesus has come closer. Jesus is, is standing in the water. We don't read here about John's protest, about not thinking he's not worthy to baptize Jesus. That's in the other Gospels. But, just, let's just read verse 31. We have the Holy Spirit's emblems of baptism and the dove are brought into focus here. I myself did not know him, John says. It's interesting he says that. I myself did not know him. He and Jesus had had very little, if any, interaction. And John knew that his job was to do one thing. Go into the Jordan River and baptize people in the river and say that the Lamb of God is coming into the world. And the Father, or the Lord had given him the sign by which he would recognize. And that sign was the Holy Spirit who would come and descend upon Jesus. So, he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, baptism, the very word baptism, is transliterated from Greek because there's no English parallel. But what it means is to submerge, submerge completely under the water. And it was even a technical term in the dyeing industry where they would in, dunk their, their cloth into the dyeing water and lift it out. And it would come out with a completely different color, taking on the, the attributes of the, the dye, absorbed right into it. Now, this is above all baptism is above all a picture of at least the portion of being submerged is a picture of death. The whole earth was baptized at one point in the flood. The uh, Israelites are spoken of by the Apostle Paul as being baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And the Apostle Paul uses the language of being baptized into the dead, Jesus Christ. So, even as John is, pro is proclaiming baptism, and as Jesus comes to be baptized by him, as Jesus goes under the water, there is a visual picture of the baptism that he will enter. Dying in our place for our sin. Dying and being buried. And then something, there's another aspect of baptism, which is the life on the other side of the death. When God flooded the earth, and baptized the whole earth, and preserved out of it only eight people and two of every kind of animal, Noah sent a dove out. First he sent a crow. If you, if you were to pick a bird that is identified with death, you pick either a crow or a vulture, I think. You live on dead things. Um, so he sent this, actually it was a raven, crow. He sent this raven out, and the raven never came back. He 
you can imagine why the raven never came back. It would be, would have, I don't want to gross anyone out, but there would have been all kinds of floating, rotting things. And that raven would find its sustenance and it would have, it could, it would rest on those things that were floating around in the water. It had no problem with that. Then he sent out a dove. And the dove, the first time he sent the dove, the dove went out and he came back and there was no place for the dove to put its feet. So it came back and Noah put the dove into his bosom. Then he sent out the dove, I think it was six days later, he sent out the dove again. And the dove came back with the green olive branch in its, in its uh, what you call it, claw. And then he sent out the dove a third time Isn't it interesting that there is this image of death? There is the utter destruction of death. And then the dove is sent out, and the dove brings back a green twig, uh, an olive branch. And this is the sign that life has begun again. It's a sign that there is new life. There is a new beginning. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit, in the form of the dove, comes upon him and remains upon him. Now, let's not read too much into this and think that Jesus received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Jesus has always been one with the Holy Spirit. But this sign... It was a sign to John so that John would know that this would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. This would be the one who through the Holy Spirit would give life to everyone who would believe on his name. And of course we see this demonstrated in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit is poured out and does come to indwell everyone who believes on his name. So there are these two emblems, both associated with the Holy Spirit. John was very clear, I baptize with water. My baptism is only a symbol. The one who's coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The one who comes after me will not only enter into death, but will raise from the dead. And will be the hope and will pour out the Holy Spirit, will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So that everybody who identifies with him in his death and believes in him would be, will be given that Holy Spirit and be baptized with the Holy Spirit and will be given new life. Well, there's a reason why the Father sent the dove. And I've, I've just said that, that was to show John that this was indeed the right one. John had no interaction with Jesus before him. He was very limited in his knowledge. He had one simple job to do, and he did it faithfully. Can you imagine the, the blessing that we have, especially if we are in Christ, to know God personally? through the Holy Spirit, to have Him dwelling within us. 
to have not only the emblems of the baptism and, and uh, not only a knowledge of the Holy Spirit to have, but to have experienced death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and a spiritual baptism into the new life. Alright, so we look now at the Lamb's entrance, we look at the Lamb's pre-existence, we look at the Holy Spirit's emblems. You're going to see that this is Trinitarian. The whole Trinity is speaking loud and clear in this little story, or this account, it's not a little story. Let's look now at the Heavenly Father's endorsement. Again, John says in verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, that is God, sent me to baptize with water. He said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Alright, so John knows because the Father had revealed that directly to him. We do not have um, we do not have the account of God actually speaking in the Gospel of John. We have to go to the other Gospels for that. I'm going to look in Matthew chapter 3. And I want you to hear God's ringing endorsement that this is indeed my son and I am pleased with him. I am completely satisfied with him. Matthew 3 verse 16 and 17. And Jesus, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we have these emblems of the Holy Spirit vindicating that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the world's sin. You've got, behold, the Father's direct witness from heaven. Not only to John, but to Jesus himself. And I don't know what the others surrounding him heard, but John... We're going to now see John himself bearing witness, bearing the burden of martyrdom that he will confess Jesus Christ no matter what happens. It says, I have seen, verse 34, so now we have John's witness to the Son's essence. And this is a definitive statement. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. If you get anything out of the Gospel of John, you have to get that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe that, you will receive life through His name. If you believe it at a level that you understand all the implications and accept them. If Jesus Christ is God and died for you, and no sacrifice that you can make will be too great for him. He will change you and give you a heart to love and to serve him. Now, the phrase, the Son of God, you've already heard, well, we didn't, John, John doesn't actually quote, this is my beloved Son in whom well please, but this is the, this is uh, John's this is the first verbal witness from a human being about the sonship and the deity of Jesus Christ. Specifically about the deity. We need to understand 
the expectations of the Jewish people with regard to their Messiah. And we need to understand how Jesus fulfilled them and then some. In fact, he fulfilled all of their expectations of Messiah with the one added um, qualification that I don't think they really understood of him actually being God, being in very nature God. So let's look at what people were expecting in their Messiah. We can find this in, and this is actually a promise from God that they took their knowledge from, from 2 Samuel verses, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verses 12 through 16. And this is the Lord speaking to King David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offering after you, and you shall come, who should, pardon me, I will, not offspring, I will raise up, I, my printing is too small, I can't read it. Okay. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, we know that Solomon built the temple, right? He was the offspring of David. But obviously, Solomon did not reign forever. So there is something else in mind here. Um, I will be to him, in verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now we have a problematic phrase, because this is messianic, but there's this phrase in here. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now when you hear a messianic prophecy, especially one that's talking about this continuing lineage, and this continuing uh, having always a descendant of David upon the throne, you need to realize that it's culmination is in the greater day, the one to whom, whom they honored when, they, when, they, when he was coming into Jerusalem and said, Hosanna to the son of David. He was the greater David. But in the middle time, in the middle period, there were all kinds of in-between Davids and all kinds of in-between sons and offspring. And they committed all kinds of sin. And what the Lord did with those in-betweeners was he disciplined them because they were not perfect. So it's encompassing this, the whole history of Israel, but the real fulfillment is in the one in whom there will be no iniquity, in the one king that never has to be disciplined because he is perfect, because he is divine, and because though he is fully divine, he is also human, and is, intent, is tempted in every way, as we are yet without sin. So it says when he commits Iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now, of course, Jesus was punished with the rod and with stripes. He was beaten with the rod, he was beaten with the whip. And it drew blood and tore the flesh off his back. He was uh, impaled with thorns upon his head. Yet this was not for discipline. It was not for his sin, but it was for the sin that he bore. The sin that he voluntarily absorbed as a perfect representative of humanity. As the one to whom the punishment could not be imputed 
has anything to do with his own sin. Uh, it says, with the stripes of my sons of men, but in verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you understand this is talking about the everlasting throne of Messiah. And so this is foundational to, to the children of Israel understanding about this Messiah. I don't think they understood the literal suffering and the literal um, punishment that would come upon their Messiah. I want to read you another passage, also from the Old Testament, also about Messiah. Psalm chapter 2. Verse starting at verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now rejoice with the kings, be rejoice, O kings, be wise, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So in, but in this passage you have the Lord saying to the writer of this song, you are my son, today I, begot, I have begotten you. And yet we know that this psalmist is looking forward to the day when the son of God will dash to pieces his enemies, and when, when he will um, take vengeance against those who come against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Messiah. But John adds to this, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John uses two words for sign, or for, for offspring. The one that is used of Jesus consistently in the book of John is the Greek word huios, which it really has a position of honor and it has a special force of being a legitimate son. This idea is made especially clear in John verse 3, verse 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and the King James puts in there only begotten because the word is monogenes, which really, a better translation is one of a kind son. So this one of a kind legitimate son. So the, the sonship of Jesus in the book of John is different from the sonship of all of the rest of us who can become sons of God by believing in his name. The word that is used by John for those kind of sons, those that become children of God, is technos, and it just simply means offspring. It's a less specific meaning. So when John says that Jesus is, is the Son of God, when he says this is the Son of God, he means the Son of God. He means God in essence. He means God in authority. He means God in 
equality, that all of the attributes of the Father are equally possessed by the Son, and yet there is separation. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that is really a fuller exposition of the last point from, from last week's message. That last point um, was the revelation of the Messiah. John came to reveal Jesus to Israel. That's why he came. And today, as you've heard about the types and offerings, and you've heard about the Lamb of God that was given by God to save the world, and you know that his name is Jesus, and you know that he came into the world to take away sin, and you know that he accomplished this by his death, by the baptism that he entered into, dying and rising again. And you know that he has power to give eternal life. There is one thing that remains, and that is that you believe the testimony. That you believe the martyr, that you believe the witness of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Jesus, that you came willingly into the world as a sacrificial lamb. Lord, that you were that lamb in Isaiah chapter 53. As the sheep before the shears is dumb, so you open not your mouth. You did not cry out. You did not cry out in your own defense. No one took your life. You laid it down freely so that you might take away, so that you might wash away, atone for, propitiate, the sins of the world. And Lord, we know that you are drawing out of the world those who believe in you. Those who believe in you in such a way that their hearts are turned from darkness to life, to light, from death to life. Father, may we hear this message in a fresh way that we would be raised again to life, even if, if there are some here that, that have never trusted in Jesus. And Lord, that we would encourage those who are indeed baptized in the Holy Spirit, having received new life. Father, help us never to grow weary of this message. Thank you for John's faithfulness in revealing the Son. And I thank you, Lord, that that same mandate has been passed on to us 